Max Quick, Book Two, The Two Travelers, by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. The sequel to Max Quick, Book One, The Pocket and the Pendant, produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Podiobooks.com. For more information on the Max Quick series or this podcast, please visit www.maxquickseries.com. Ten, the gunfighter's fortune. Back at the Whitby, Sasha listened carefully as Casey gave a blow-by-blow account of what had happened at the Thirteen. Cody sat by the window, watching the street below, half expecting Blackthorn to show up. But the sheriff seemed to have retreated to his Victorian, at least for the time being. You're lucky you didn't get killed, Sasha said when Casey had finished. Casey's eyes snapped up at her. What? That's all you have to say? I unmasked two Nibirians, Wiley and Blackthorn. Yeah, but what you did was really stupid, Casey. Sasha shot back. Really stupid. Cody looked up from the window. And you, Sasha said to Cody reprovingly, you should have stopped her. Cody opened his mouth to speak, but Casey cut him off. Leave Cody out of this. What's wrong with you all of a sudden, Sasha? I mean, what bug crawled up your... Sasha whirled on her and got right in her face. You suspect this town is crawling with Nuberians. Nuberians, Casey! She held up her hand with the sunbolt tattoo for emphasis. In case you forgot. And so, knowing this full well, what did you do? You try to bait them. You wave around your little bracelet. You throw Anki's name out there. And guess what? What a surprise. Somebody notices. Then this wily guy goes running straight back to Blackthorn. This being the very same sheriff we know is spooky fast on the draw. We saw him kill a man when we arrived in the jip, Casey. We're crying out loud. How many more red flags do you need? Are you finished? Casey growled. Almost, Sasha replied. You should have been more low-key, Case, instead of making a spectacle of yourself. Frankly, if Blackthorn is a Nuberian centurion, I'm surprised he didn't just plug you and take the bracelet. So am I, Casey had to admit to herself. He had almost done just that. Well, you're the one who made a spectacle out of me, Casey shot back. Well, you wanted me to, Sasha replied. You were so busy wowing Roy Rogers here, she nodded at Cody, that you completely forgot yourself. And what the hell did you think you were going to do against Blackthorn? I didn't have a choice, Casey screamed. He dragged me out of the 13. Oh, sure. Not once he showed up with his deputies and pinned Cody down. At that point, you didn't. But by then, it was too late. But you didn't have to tweak Wiley's nose. That's where you screwed up. He came over to our table. He heard me laughing. For some reason, he came over because of that. How can I help that? Then maybe you should have kept it down. Not gotten yourself noticed, Sasha sniped back. In fact, maybe you shouldn't have gone out to the 13 at all. Casey's eyes turned into two slits. Oh, what are you, jealous? Is that what this is? Because I'm having a little fun for a change, and you're not? Casey faltered, unsure of whether she should say what was really on her mind. Go ahead. Say it. Sasha dared her. For once, you're not the prom queen, and you can't deal with it. Sasha just stared at Casey aghast for a full ten seconds. Then she positioned her face inches away from Casey's and whispered quietly, I would have thought you knew me better than that by now. At once, Casey's eyes filled with tears. Sasha stared at her for another long moment and then said carefully, 
I'm mad at you because I love you. You're my sister, and I'm terrified that Blackthorn almost killed you tonight. I'm afraid you're going to do something else careless, and then I'll lose you. That's why. Tears bubbled over the edge of Casey's eyes. The next morning, Casey stared out the front window of their second-story room at the Whitby. Sasha was in the bath, and taking a good long one from the looks of it. Casey could see most of the main street of the Jip from her window, as well as windows in the other buildings across the way, and several of these windows were filled with others staring into the street, just like she was doing. People watching seemed to be one of the main forms of entertainment around here. There were men lazily unloading crates from a cart at the general store and moving them inside. Cowboys lounged and smoked on the boardwalk, leaning against the posts, chin-wagging and eyeing the goings-on. And some of them were already drunk in the midday sun, several passed out here and there on the boardwalk, accumulating flies and sunburns. A few women with parasols avoided these liquor corpses studiously, weaving through the commotion with gazes conscientiously averted to the ground in front of them, magically able to navigate while avoiding eye contact with ruffians that were still vertical. Casey smiled a bit. The clock clearly ticked a little bit more slowly in the jip. Blackthorn appeared suddenly from the direction of his Victorian mansion at the end of the street. Casey drew a sharp intake of breath, recalling their encounter the previous evening. She felt a fresh stab of hate for him. At that moment, Blackthorn stood a little straighter, taller, and inhaled a deep breath as though he had discovered a whiff of a delicious narcotic floating in the breeze. He stopped in the road and looked around. But as usual, everyone was avoiding his path, doing their level best not to attract the baleful eye of his attention. The sheriff was distracted by something. He fished his pocket watch from his vest and clicked it open. He nodded to himself and returned it with a kind of itchiness. His gaze flipped up towards the buildings across the street from Casey. The 13, Casey thought. No, he was looking somewhere else. She strained to follow his gaze. What was he looking at? And then she figured it out. The fortune teller. Was he actually debating going in there? Blackthorn took a stutter step towards the foreboding curtain and then stopped. He looked around as if debating how it would look if he entered. Did Blackthorn want to get his fortune told? It seemed so out of character for him. He was cold, confident. People like that didn't go see psychics. They didn't need to. They already knew everything. Casey rose quickly, suddenly feeling a sense of urgency. If he did go in there, she absolutely had to overhear what was said. It might provide an invaluable stream of information. Why, she might even get some insight into what made him tick. She could learn something important. Like what this maroon Niberian centurion was actually up to. She felt a twinge of regret as she hurried down the stairs of the hotel. Sasha had yelled at her only last night about exactly this sort of thing. And here she was, running out on her without saying anything while she took a bath. But this was different, Casey argued back with herself. She wasn't forgetting herself this time. She was on her toes, and she would be more careful. Blackthorn wouldn't even know she was there. They had to be opportunistic if they expected to survive, to escape the jip, to get back on Anki's trail. No, she was doing what she had to do. In moments, Casey had managed to cross the street and circle behind the buildings on the other side without being spotted. Blackthorn was distracted with his own internal conflict. He wasn't his usual alert self. It had been simple to slip into the motion of the crowd undetected and slide across the street in scant seconds. Around the back of the buildings, the boardwalk was raised a foot and a half above a dirt base. 
and as Casey had hoped, she could easily wriggle underneath it. She'd be able to sit right beneath Blackthorn and the fortune teller. She'd hear everything that was said. Carefully, Casey slithered beneath the boardwalk to a position directly beneath the booth. Most of the view looking up through the floor slats was obscured with rugs, but she managed to find one opening in particular that gave a decent view of the whole place. And then she sat and waited. Blackthorn finally made up his mind. He approached the booth of the fortune teller like it was a duty of some kind. The booth squatted on the boardwalk between two wood plank buildings like a toad. On the outside, it appeared to be a tawdry thing, made entirely of tarp and blankets and rope, strung together like a circus tent. It was nothing, a sham and a prayer. But when Blackthorn pulled back the gold, thick-trimmed curtain and peeked inside, he saw a strange and alien place. He had assumed that it would be squalid and dirty. Instead, even he had to admit that it was probably the cleanest part of town. The floor was sumptuously adorned with fine rugs, Piles of luxurious silk pillows invited visitors to drown in their comforts. Nonetheless, he clearly didn't want to be there. He had the clenched body language of someone just dying to run away. But something had compelled him to enter, and now to stay, however reluctantly. The fortune teller looked up slowly in the wind-dancing candlelight. The draft from the open flap tickled the flames. Ah, so you have come. The gunfighter fidgeted before her. There are things I would know. There's a new arrival, a girl. Casey felt her stomach twist. A girl? Her? Was Blackthorn here because of her? Tell me about your dreams, the fortune teller snapped, not yet looking at him. My dreams? Yes, everyone dreams, of course. I don't, Blackthorn said seemingly baffled himself, as if this were the very first time he had ever considered this question. The words had come out of him before he had realized that he was speaking. Hmm, the fortune teller said in what seemed to be feigned surprised. You don't. No, he replied, mastering himself. Do you sleep? Well, I... You don't sleep either. Silence. Sleepless and dreamless. Blackthorn glared at her, but the fortune teller was unperturbed. Well, <laughs> I'd ask your birthday, but I'd guess that like most everyone else here in the Jip, you won't know it. The gunfighter opened his mouth, but no sound came out. Again, he was baffled, and baffled by his bafflement. This sort of thing didn't happen to him a lot. Why did no one know their own birthdays, Casey thought? That was weird. Was it some kind of amnesia? It reminded her of Max. He didn't know his birthday either. Was this a whole town full of Maxes? What's your name? The fortune teller asked. What's my... You mean to tell me you don't know who I am? It was apparently inconceivable in Archero Egypt to not have heard of Sheriff Blackthorn. I simply asked you to tell me your name, she replied quietly. Blackthorn, the sheriff replied icily. What, you have no first name? The fortune teller inquired with a hint of amusement. Blackthorn is what everyone calls me. It'll do for you. The fortune teller was silent. What's your name? Blackthorn asked. An eye for an eye. Athena, she replied curtly, and that will do for you. This time she did look up at him, daring him to challenge her. But now he seemed mildly amused by her pluck and did not. 
So, to the cards then, I suppose, shall we? Athena gestured with a silky movement. Her outstretched arm beckoned politely, although she looked down demurely and did not meet his iron gaze. She motioned for him to sit opposite her at a nearby table. It was draped with midnight blue raiment. A pearl-white half-moon glowed serenely in the center of the cloth. Blackthorn dropped heavily into a chair. The wooden legs groaned in protest beneath him. The fortune-teller shuffled a deck and dealt five cards all face down. She turned the first card over. The Nine of Suns, she whispered, holding it up. The card showed a giant bloody red sun over a desert. Casey winced. That certainly looked familiar. What does it mean? Blackthorn asked. It means that you are part of this place, part of our churro jip, the fortune teller replied cryptically. Huh, I could have told you that, Blackthorn snorted. No, uh, there's a distinction, a subtlety. You were part of our churro jip. You don't come from outside. You're native to this town. Blackthorn was silent. He didn't seem very impressed. But Casey was surprised. Native? Did this mean he wasn't a centurion after all? A centurion certainly would not be a native. He would definitely come from outside. A whole planet outside, as a matter of fact. The cards seemed to point things in the wrong direction. Oh, come on. They're just stupid cards. Casey kicked herself inwardly. This woman was probably making up everything she said. Blackthorn was an Uberian centurion, no matter what the cards said. And she was going to prove it. But the fortune teller was already moving on. She turned the second card. The Fountain of Fears, she breathed, holding it up. This card showed a medieval marble fountain spouting water. All kinds of objects Casey couldn't make out seemed to be dancing in the bubbling liquid, presumably meant to symbolize terrors of one kind or another. But this time Blackthorn didn't bite. He leaned back and squinted suspiciously at Athena, as though she were a con artist. He waited for her to um and ah a bit more and get to the point. You live for the fear in others. You enjoy it. Blackthorn licked his lips unconsciously. His tongue came out and swept along beneath his bristle-brushed mustache. Well, at least that sounded right, Casey thought. Now we're getting back on track. She remembered Cody saying something similar about Blackthorn, and this certainly sounded more like the psychology of a centurion. Casey suddenly remembered Moffdet's delight back in the time of the pocket. He had so loved clapping his hands, making the Serp kids jump around in terror. She remembered him threatening Max with impending servitude, and of how he, Moffdet, would relish making Max come and go to the clapping of my hands. A third card was turned, a sun covered by a moon. Ah, the transit, an eclipse, a shadow across the face of the sun. You are the moon, of course, the dark side, trying to swallow the sun but one cannot live without the other. Blackthorn eyed this card more greedily. It meant something to him. She had hit some chord. He liked this card. Yet his face changed when she said that one could not live without the other. He didn't like that idea. And then what? Blackthorn said. She turned the fourth card and held it up. The two of roses, she said. This card showed a red rose and a white rose crossing each other with their stems entwined. Blackthorn reacted almost as if someone had slapped him. He didn't like this one. How is this all supposed to work? Blackthorn asked suddenly, looking away from the two of roses. 
I mean, you know, this whole fortune thing. But the fortune teller only sighed. This world is a dream. This deck of cards is part of that dream. So the mind of the dreamer controls the cards. Symbols emerge from the cards, which reveal the deeper mind of the dreamer. And the dreamer is always watching. The dreamer is watching us, even now. The fortune teller's eyes danced dangerously around the room and then down to the floor. Casey felt a shock of fear course through her. Instinctively, she shrank deeper into the darkness of her sandy hole. Did the fortune teller know somehow that she was here? Of course she didn't, Casey railed at herself. How could she? But something about that last card, the transit, seemed to be really bothering Blackthorn. The moon. It should be able to overcome the sun. If it's strong enough. Right? I mean, in the card here, it, it wins. The sun is defeated. Look at it. <laughs> so it would seem at first, the fortune teller replied carefully. But every eclipse ends. Every dark night eventually becomes dawn. Everything contains the seed of its opposite. I don't believe you, the gunfighter snarled. You're wrong! You're trying to trick me! The fortune teller smiled a very small smile. She turned over the last card and held it up. It was the fool. Blackthorn became furious. In a split nanosecond, his gun was pointed at the fortune teller's head. The long black barrel... Swirling gold leaf and taglio dancing along its length, shook ever so subtly in the gunfighter's hand. The demonic iron actually looked bloodthirsty. You will not insult me so, Blackthorn said carefully. It's just a card, the fortune teller said nonchalantly. The gun in her face was having absolutely no effect on her. I've said nothing. It is you who draw conclusions about its import. The fortune teller rose, ignoring the gun, and went to her fire. She removed the tea kettle and poured herself a healthy cup. Blackthorn kept his gun trained on her the entire time. He seemed to want to shoot her, but not shoot her simultaneously. He couldn't make up his mind. Already, he had half depressed the hair trigger of his shooter, the hammer cocked halfway back. His teeth gnashed visibly in his mouth. Athena sat down and sipped her tea. She had returned to the spot directly in front of Blackthorn's barrel, as if intentionally placing her head in the path of an impending bullet. It didn't matter. It didn't matter to her at all. She didn't even look up from her tea. Aren't you going to offer me some tea? Blackthorn asked. Athena laughed. Oh no, she replied as if this were hilarious. Why not? Blackthorn growled. Was she insulting him again? Why, because you haven't got the time, the fortune teller replied. What? A moment later, gunfire thundered. It was coming from somewhere nearby in Arturo Jip. It startled Blackthorn, and he gave a visible jump at the sound. For a second, Casey thought the sheriff would accidentally shoot the fortune teller in his surprise. Then there was another shot. This one brought Blackthorn to life. He snapped out of his geese and tore out of the booth. Athena serenely sipped her tea with a small smile on her face. Blackthorn ran out onto the main street of the jip, eyes darting around furiously, seeking the source of the gunshots. He didn't have to look very long. It was that good-for-nothing blind Indian wearing his ridiculous crushed top hat. He was carrying a package, a box it looked like, and three drunken hooligans, the Sheridan brothers, were shooting at his feet and laughing. Each time the sightless Indian would take a step, the Sheridans would fire at the ground directly in front of him, 
making the dirt jump several feet into the air. Blackthorn scowled. What was the Indian's name again? He'd seen him around, but both his existence and his name kept slipping the sheriff's mind. The Indian would stop and patiently wait for a moment. Then, he would tentatively try to walk forward once again. The Sheridans would allow him to get a couple steps, letting him think that perhaps this time they'd let him go. But just then, they chewed at his feet again and exploded into laughter, as if this game were the most hilarious thing in the entire world. Ooh, Injun Joe, I wonder who's shooting at you. Too bad you can't see. Oh, I think they're over there. No, wait, they're over there. Oh, no, it's a hill day. Watch out. This last crack got all three of them for some reason. They bent over laughing with tears in their eyes. Blackthorn stopped in his tracks. The blind Indian didn't know he was here. He wasn't actually obliged to help, that is, if he didn't make his presence known. He despised the Indian anyway, for reasons he couldn't entirely explain, even to himself. One of the Sheridan brothers suddenly noticed Blackthorn. He straightened up like a kid caught dipping a girl's pigtail in the inkwell. But Blackthorn tipped his hat polite-like, turned and simply walked away, as if nothing untoward was happening whatsoever. Surprised and delighted that they weren't in trouble with the law, the Sheridans erupted into new laughter. They shot a couple of extra times at the wrinkled, blind old man in celebration. The Indian stood still again, waiting, clutching his box. Blackthorn had walked perhaps four paces when the blind Indian distinctly said, Sheriff. Wincing, Blackthorn stopped. The smiles fell away from the Sheridan brothers' faces. Sheriff, the Indian repeated. Even if he had been able to see, there was no way he could have seen Blackthorn. He was facing the wrong direction. How in all the red hells had this old blind Indian known he was present? There ain't no sheriff here, one of the Sheridans said angrily. He fired another time at the Indian's feet. No, he is here. He is right behind me, the Indian said clearly. Blackthorn cursed to himself. He didn't know how his presence had been detected, but he did know that the Indian was sure that he was here. And that meant he was now obliged. Boys, Blackthorn said with a sigh, that's enough. Go back inside the Thirteen and leave the engine alone. Annoyed, the Sheridans slowly made their way back into the Thirteen, leering at the Indian the whole time, gesturing revenge silently. Blackthorn circled the Indian, unsure of what he could or could not sense. It bothered Blackthorn that he didn't know. He couldn't read this old man like he could read other people. They all vented fear, hate, anger, whatever. And these things were always clear to the sheriff, palpable. He could taste them. People were always the same. Except for this little Indian. He vented nothing. He was controlled, unnoticed, as though his own sightlessness actually made him invisible to the world, rather than the other way around. It was like he didn't exist. What's your name, Indian? Logan, the Indian replied. Logan, you shouldn't be out here by yourself, you know. People here don't much like your kind. You could get hurt. Logan shrugged. I am not afraid, he said simply. With that, he nodded to Blackthorn and walked away, clutching his box. Blackthorn watched him go, disturbed. He found that he wanted this little man to fear. It was intolerable that he should be so centered, so unconcerned. Blackthorn cursed inwardly. That little man needed to be more afraid. Suddenly, Blackthorn flashed on the fountain of fears. 
That damnable fortune teller had gotten him right after all. It was true. He lived for the fear in others. It was only after Logan was out of sight that Blackthorn realized he had never asked him what was inside the box. Casey slipped back into her room at the Whitby and was amazed to discover that Sasha was still in the bath. Hello? Sasha called out when she entered. It's me, Casey replied. Did you just go somewhere? Sasha asked. There's some shooting or something. Yeah, I know. I want to go check it out, Casey said, thinking quickly. It was some drunks giving Logan a hard time, but he handled it. Is he okay? Sasha called out, worried now. Oh, he's, he's completely fine. He knows how to take care of himself, not to worry. We should get back to the teepee. I know Cody only rented this room for the night, and I don't want to impose. Yeah, I know, Casey replied, wistfully looking at her dress. Let me know when you're ready, and we'll go back. I think you should learn how to shoot, Logan said abruptly. Both of you. It was still fairly early in the morning, and they had just finished breakfast after returning to the teepee. The sun had not yet baked the desert into the daily inferno it inevitably became, and it was still a bit chilly in the teepee from the previous night. Casey sat up and pulled back the hood of her Starlin High sweatshirt in surprise. What, you mean guns? Logan nodded. Yes, guns. Why? Casey asked. We're not going to pick a fight with Blackthorn, that's for sure. You're in a time and place of guns. There's more than just Blackthorn here to deal with. You might be caught alone. Cody or I might not be around. It is just prudent, that is all. Casey made a noise with her lips and pulled back her sheaf of blonde hair. <sighs> when? she asked. Now, Logan replied. Lead me outside. He looked up with his blind eyes expectantly. Oh, great, Sasha whispered to Casey, the blonde leading the blind. But Casey just ignored her. She rose and took Logan by the hand. He smiled and clutched a wooden box under his other arm, the same box he had had with him earlier during his encounter with Blackthorn. Logan led them out into the desert, about an hour's walk away. We don't want to alarm anyone in town, Logan explained. We're going to make a lot of noise. As they walked, Logan began to instruct them. Most gunfighters are stupid, Logan said. They are all bluster and speed. They don't take the time to aim. And in doing so, they mostly miss. This is why most gunfights you see are just a lot of noise. Bullets hitting everything in sight, except those fighting. Then one of them finally gets lucky and it's over. It is better to take your time and aim. When you shoot, it is also important to block out everything around you. This is the difficult part because most of the time someone will be shooting back. But you must trust that your opponent is usually rushing his aim and will probably miss you. You must take advantage of his panic, his rush to shoot, and use that against him. But how do you block out everything around you like that? Sasha asked. There is only one way. You must accept your death. Once you have accepted that you will die, then you are no longer afraid and no longer distracted with it. Those who accept their death have a much greater chance of living. Concentrate on your aim. Nothing else matters. Hit your opponent once in the head, and it's over. So you're saying that we should aim for the head? Sasha asked. Logan nodded. Some people say that it is better to aim for the body because it is a bigger target. But it isn't. An injured fighter can still fight back, and an injury may only succeed in giving your opponent more focus than he had before, and thus he becomes more dangerous. There is nothing worse than a wounded animal. 
If you can only wound your opponent but not kill him, it is better not to shoot at all. But the heart is a much smaller target than the head, and when you aim for the body, what you are really saying is that you are aiming for the heart. Heart or head, your opponent is dead, but the head is easier to hit. Casey nodded. Logan handed her a gun. He handed the other one to Sasha. Pulling the trigger is the very last part of shooting the gun. Before that come many things. Aiming, Sasha said. Concentrating, right? Logan nodded. Yes, but there is more. The gun is just a thing. Without you, it is nothing. You have seen how some things in the world can take on the thoughts of their owners, how when you handle these things, you can receive these thoughts. Follows gemstones, Casey said. Yes, Logan replied. Heartstones, we call those. They are more able than most things to take on what is in the heart of the owner. But all things have this power to one extent or another. The gun is no different. When you hold a gun, you must realize that it is no longer just a gun, not just a thing. It is you. You must not think of it as a thing, separate, but as part of you, as much as your hand or your foot. And when you kill, it is your mind that kills, not the gun. If your mind is weak, the gun is weak. Many men cower behind a gun to compensate for a weak mind. But this ultimately never works. These men eventually run into someone with a strong mind, and perhaps not even a gun, and then they are dead. Here, in the world, we see two gunfighters. They stand across from each other, perhaps on a dusty plain, waiting to draw. But in the ultimate expression of reality, there are really only two minds fighting. That is all. That is what is true. We hear shots. We experience bullets flying around. But that is not the fire. It is merely the smoke from the fire. Then, then how do we become the fire? Casey asked. Logan smiled. With passion. With concentration. With utter and total will. With focus. With such complete discipline of intent that the boundary of what is you and what is everything else disappears from your awareness. Here, Logan said, handing Sasha a small clay plate. Throw this as high and as far as you can. Sasha took the plate. She held it like a frisbee and then threw it. Her former athleticism served her well. The plate soared high into the air, being surprisingly aerodynamic and lightweight at once. Logan stood there completely still. He waited. Then, in a blurred move like lightning, he drew his gun and fired. He did this with such grace that his dusty top hat didn't even wiggle on his head. The plate exploded. Logan replaced the gun and stood there. Sasha and Casey were aghast. But you're... Casey stuttered. Blind? Logan smiled. My eyes do not see, that is true. But I do not aim with my eyes. I do not shoot with my eyes. I use my mind. Wait a minute, Sasha said suspiciously. How can you do that without being able to see it all? Are you really blind? Casey was about to protest when Logan gestured that it was all right. He removed his blackened glasses. Skin, and only skin, covered the sockets where his eyes should have been. I was born blind. I have never seen the way that you do. Sasha's mouth hung open. In some ways, this was a gift, Logan said, replacing his glasses. Your eyes will be a burden as you learn what I have to teach. 
For me, the strong eye was the only way to see at all. The strong eye? Casey asked. The strong eye is what we call the eye of the heart. That is how I experience the world. The strong eye is connected to the world. It doesn't just see. When I shot that plate just now, I felt it. I knew it. It was my opponent. I killed it with my heart. Casey shook her head. I understand what you're saying, and I don't understand what you're saying. I mean, we've seen things like this before, when we were in the pocket. But we had help. Um, follows gemstones that gave us the ability to see and do things we normally couldn't. Like the pocket, whooshing. But what you're asking us to learn is to do the same sorts of things without the help of heartstones of Umphalos. And quickly. I mean, honestly, I don't know if we can. It could take years, even if we succeed. Logan shook his head. Perhaps. But you can also learn in a single instant if you so choose. You are connected to the entire universe. Therefore, the knowledge is already within you. It is available if you are not afraid to find it within yourself. Logan shrugged. It's up to you, ultimately. I can try to teach you what I can. Do you wish to learn? Sasha and Casey both nodded. Logan smiled. Then we will begin. He opened the wooden box. There were two sets of guns and holsters inside. They were old and worn. These were obviously used guns. Logan muttered something about having loaned them out to a friend and having retrieved them just that very morning. Then, he carefully handed one set of guns to Casey and the other to Sasha. The action was almost reverent, or like the guns were made of glass. First, get to know your gun, Logan said. Smoke it in. Feel it in your hands. Look at it. Don't fire it. Don't even aim it. Just let it get used to you. Think of it as a dog sniffing you, becoming comfortable with its new owner. Sasha and Casey sat down and both held their guns, looking them over. This went on for several hours. Every now and then, Logan took the guns away from the girls for a few moments and then returned them as if reassuring the weapons. He whispered to them that they should now accept the girls as their new masters. When the sun started to go down, Logan took them back to his teepee in the jip. On their first day of learning about guns, they didn't even fire a single shot. Later that evening, Cody rejoined the threesome at the teepee. He had been to the general store and returned with several different meats, eggs, and water from the well. Logan cooked dinner, and Sasha pitched in, helping him out. While they waited, Cody led Casey outside. Here. Thought you might appreciate this, especially after the other day, Cody said. He handed her a spyglass. It looked antique, although Casey knew that here in Arturo Jip, it was probably quite new. Point it out that way. Casey strained to see where he was pointing under the starlight with her naked eye. Scowling, she raised the spyglass and looked through. She saw a dim orange fire glow winking in the distance, barely visible. What is that? Casey asked, astonished. Cody smiled. Thought you might know the answer to that by now. And then the answer formed in her mind. Archero Jip? You mean to tell me I'm looking at here through the spyglass? Cody nodded, smiling. I do. Here, point it north. He adjusted her so that she was facing the right way. She put the glass to her eye, and sure enough, there was the same twinkling orange star set into the desert floor. Another Archero Jip. That is just too weird, Casey breathed. Next, she tried south and saw the same thing. 
you had a powerful enough telescope, you'd just see Arturo gyps all the way to infinity, I guess. I reckon so, Cody agreed. There was this one story we read in English class. It was an Indian myth about this guy named Indra. Not Indian like Logan, but like somebody from the country of India. Cody nodded that he understood and took her hand. Anyway, in India they believe in reincarnation. That's where when you die, you're reborn here on Earth again. Sometimes it's another person or it could be an animal. Depends on how you lived your last life. But what I remember is that in the myth, Indra is talking to this strange boy. And Indra is acting all superior and full of himself. And at that very moment, an army of ants, thousands and thousands of them, suddenly come marching across the floor. Indra stares at them. The boy he's talking to bursts out laughing. And Indra goes, Why are you laughing? And the boy says, Those ants are former Indras, all of them. Cody nodded. And all these Arturo gyps, reaching from horizon to horizon. They remind you of the ants. Casey nodded back. Yeah, it seems like the same thing. But I wish I knew what it meant. You'll figure it out. Cody said, kissing her cheek. Give it time. Learn what you can from Logan in the meanwhile. It might come in handy down the road a spell. Casey fell into his arms and curled up there as if it were the safest spot in the whole world. Over the course of the next week, Logan spent a lot of time with the girls. They were now spending entire days from sunup to sundown out in the desert. By the third day, he had them fire their weapons. At first, he didn't even give them a target. He just wanted them to get the feel of the iron exploding in their hands. The kickback surprised Casey so much that she dropped her gun upon her first firing. Logan had been very upset with her about this, claiming that days of work had just been undone. The gun wouldn't trust her now. It had been spooked by her butterfingers. And now, Casey would have to work doubly hard to regain that trust. But Sasha fared better. She had fired clean and true on her first try. She had fully expected the kickback and let her arms hang loose to absorb the energy. Do it like your friend, Logan screamed at Casey. Don't be the dumb blonde of the group. Casey glowered at Logan's head as he turned away, trying to set his stupid hat on fire by sheer willpower alone. On the sixth day, Logan set up a series of clay targets in the desert, each further and further away. Initially, both girls had succumbed to the temptation to fire in rapid succession, like people in the movies always did. Logan was constantly screaming at them to slow down, reminding them to take time to aim. He would also insist that they feel each of the shots they fired, imbue them with the very energy of their own awareness. In fact, he cared much more that they did this correctly than how close to the target their shots actually came. But by the end of two weeks, the girls were hitting their targets with surprising regularity. Casey even caught Logan smiling a little bit for the first time since they had begun to train. And by the end of the third week, it was rare that they missed anything Logan threw into the air. But then, Logan started trying to distract them while they shot. Just as they were about to fire, he would sneak up behind them and shake them, or scream like a banshee in their ears. Sasha in particular was annoyed to no end by this. It threw off their aim, as if it were the first week all over again. But steadily, they overcame this sort of thing, and in a few days, Logan's haranguing ceased to distract them. Then, Logan cranked up the pressure another notch. He stood off at a distance and actually started firing live rounds in their general direction as they practiced. Just before one of them would squeeze off a shot, Logan would pop the sand at their feet with a shot of his own. Dirt would whiz up into the air in a little column and rattle at their feet. His bullets began landing in the nearby sand with an alarming closeness and regularity. At first, Sasha would be okay with this for a bit, and then, 
She would crumple down into the sand, with her hands over her head in panic, screaming at the top of her lungs. No! Logan bellowed at her. You have just done the most stupid thing possible. You have made yourself a still target for me. He fired three shots rapidly so close to her feet that Casey thought he might actually slip this time and hit her. If you're going to panic, at least run and make it hard for me to hit you. You are insane, you stupid old man, Sasha howled at him. Stop freaking shooting at me! But Logan actually seemed pleased that he'd gotten under her skin, that he'd uncovered this weakness. Now he knew what to work on to make her better. Sasha quit that very day, but after some coaxing from Cody and Casey, she was back out there again the next. Casey, on the other hand, didn't freeze up under this kind of pressure, but her aim suffered greatly. She couldn't seem to concentrate the way she had before. You must learn to shoot cleanly while under fire, Logan howled at her. Do you think your opponent is just going to sit there quietly and let you get your aim? No! Logan would scream and howl wildly while firing at them, keeping the pressure on. He'd hurl insults and make fun of them. Bullets flew around the girls until they actually became accustomed to the feeling of being shot at while shooting. But even so, their aim did not improve to its former levels. The girls seemed to have stopped progressing. Blackthorn's been lurking, Cody said to Logan and the girls over dinner. Where you been out in the desert? He's been watching the teepee. Logan nodded. What do you think he wants? I don't know, Cody replied, genuinely puzzled. He doesn't seem hostile. More uh, inquisitive-like. He thinks I don't see him hiding in the shadows between the buildings, but I do. Sasha and Casey both went, hmm, at the same time. Both of you need to think of your deaths more, Logan said suddenly. What a grisly topic, Sasha replied. What the hell would I want to think about my own death? Because, Logan replied, then you will become used to it. Remember what I told you when we began? That you needed to forget everything but your aim? Everything, even yourself. If you think on your death beforehand, accept it, even expect it, then you won't worry about it anymore. And if you're not worried about it, then you won't mind the bullets so much. They won't touch your mind. Then you will become truly dangerous to your opponent. And you will probably live through the fight, whereas if you are afraid, you will probably die. That is the paradox. To their credit, the girls both took this advice to heart. Slowly but surely, the girls learned to control their yammering hearts. In the back of their minds, they knew Logan would never hit them. But he made sure to land his shots near enough to them that their bones weren't sure, even if their minds were. And this, in fact, was the point. Logan was training their minds, all the way down to its bottom, to the deepest levels of their nervous system. By the fifth week, Logan had them both hitting targets consistently while he fired live rounds at them. Logan's shots were now remarkably close. Live bullets whistled through the air on either side of Sasha and Casey, mere inches away from their hands, their arms, and their heads. At the end of the day, they even felt shot up and ragged. The finishing touch was teaching them how to draw quickly and to anticipate their opponent. Yet this was the icing on the cake, and it only took a few more days to get them both smoothly going from fully holstered irons to aiming in a split second. But shooting accurately was the main thing, and both Casey and Sasha had mastered that. They were gunfighters now, both of them. Logan's gun boot camp had been remarkably effective. Cody was finally allowed to attend practice for the first time. As he watched, Logan put the girls to their paces. 
Logan looked like a lunatic gymnast, between his throwing plates in the air and shooting at the girls the whole time. Cody nodded in approval at their performance. He shook his head, smiling, amazed at both Logan and the girls. Well, you all have sure been putting some time in under old Saul these past several weeks, Cody said. They're fast learners, Logan said to Cody. Both of them. Remarkable. What? Sasha howled back, overhearing. All we heard for the past six weeks is how stupid we are and how we're the worst students you've ever had. Logan smiled. Oh, that. I was lying. I was tricking you two into stretching yourselves past what you thought you could accomplish. Cody shrugged. Don't be insulted. He did the same thing to me. In fact, he still does it to me. But we're pretty darn good with these things now, Casey said, spinning her gun into her holster. Whatever he did to us, it worked. It did, Cody said. You should see both of you now. Heck, I'm not even going to draw on either of you, ever. You better not, Casey howled, laughing. Here, Logan, Sasha cried out. Logan looked up. Sasha shot the crushed black top hat from his head. Logan stayed perfectly still for a moment, and then a wide grin spread across his face. Sasha ran up to him and kissed him on the forehead. Thanks, she said, from both Casey and me. Sasha bent down and retrieved Logan's hat and placed it back on his head. I'll fix the hole, but I just had to do that. No, Logan said with a smile. Leave the hole. It will remind me always of the both of you. You've been listening to Max Quick, Book 2, The Two Travelers, by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Podiobooks.com. For more information on this patio book, please visit www.maxquickseries.com. The print version of both The Pocket and the Pendant, Max Quick Book 1, and The Two Travelers, Max Quick Book 2, are available at lulu.com in paperback format, PDF format, and hardcover. <laughs>